Hello, everyone. Good evening. I'd like to welcome you to this evening's public lecture. I'm Jill Dolan, the chair of the University Public Lectures Committee, and I'm really delighted to see so many of you here tonight. This is our last event for the fall season, but we've got lots more good lectures coming up in the spring, which I encourage you to read all about on our website, which is lectures.princeton.edu. Tonight's lecture is made possible through a generous gift from the estate of Spencer Trask, who graduated from Princeton in 1866. The purpose of the Trask Lecture Series is to bring to campus speakers who emphasize the importance of the arts and humanities, and our speaker tonight certainly fits that bill. Before I introduce our eminent guest, I want to tell you a few things about logistics. First of all, we ask that you observe our no-flash photography rule, as it's, uh, disrupt it's disruptive to the speaker and obviously to the rest of the audience. And also, of course, if you would take a moment to turn off your cell phones and other electronic devices, that would be lovely too. After Ms. Smith's talk tonight, we'll have a question and answer period. If you'd like to ask a question, I need to urge you to use the microphones that will be set up in either aisle. These lectures, as you know, are videotaped and archived, and if we can't hear your question, it means that the answers are less meaningful, and of course your, que your question doesn't get entered into the archival record. So do just line up in the aisles, and then we'll alternate calling on people on each side. Finally, Ms. Smith has kindly agreed to do a book signing after her performance this evening. What we'd like people to do, and I want to thank Labyrinth Books for being here to sell books, all of which are gone now. So thank you very much for being here to do that. Thank you very much for buying the books. If you've bought one that you'd like signed, just line up on this side, on uh, your right side of the hall, and we'll have a table up here on stage where Patty, Patty Smith will be sitting to sign them at the end of the lecture. So if you all line up this way and then come up on stage and then exit right through the door, that should make the traffic flow reasonable and easy. Those are all the logistical points. Now. It's my great honor to introduce tonight's guest, Patti Smith. Smith has been called Punk Rock's Poet Laureate by some and the godmother of punk by others, both for good reason. Who can forget the haunting, ever-accelerating chords of her cover of the song Gloria, G-L-O-R-I-A, which begins with the wonderful challenge, Jesus died for someone's sins, but not mine. In her wonderful new book, Smith says she had written the line some years before as a declaration of existence, as a vow to take responsibility for her own actions. Who can forget the insistent chords that capture the urgency of her classic, Because the Night, which she co-wrote with Bruce Springsteen in 1978? For those of us coming of age in the 1970s, Patti Smith's innovative musical and personal style set the tone for a generation eager to slough off the constraints of convention and to consider revolutionary forms and contents in the arts. For women rockers, Smith provided a crucial role model as a performer who refused to trade on, conventional, on conventionally gendered sex appeal. Her power as a musician, a performer, a writer, an intellectual, a poet, and a collaborator in the do-it-yourself punk scene encouraged women to strike out on their own idiosyncratic paths through the American art scene. Smith's name was synonymous with CBGB's, the divey punk rock bar on the Bowery in the 1970s, 
that offered a home to the music she popularized with her 1975 debut album, Horses. Patti Smith was named a commander of the Order of the Arts and Letters by the French Minister of Culture in 2005 and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. Her poetry and lyrics are influenced by iconic figures, including Arthur Rambeau, William S. Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg. Her life and her work has intersected with some of our most treasured artists, including playwright Sam Shepard, with whom she co-wrote the play Cowboy Mouth in 1971, as well as Janis Joplin, Todd Rundgren, Lenny Kay, Springsteen, and many others. Her most famous lasting relationship association was with artist Robert Maplethorpe, a relationship she honors in her moving elegiac memoir, Just Kids, which won the 2010 National Book Award for Nonfiction and forms the basis of her talk for us tonight. Thank you all very much for being here. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Patti Smith. One, two. That on? Excuse me. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever see that? I forget which Rolling Stones uh, movie is. You know, mixed pants or falling down. He goes, you don't want me trousers to fall down, do you? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> well, anyway, that pretty much sums it up for me. Anyway, I'm really glad to be here. Um, I did aspire to come to Princeton when I was a teenager, but uh, was not, did not have the academic requirements. So, so here I am now. Ha, ha, ha. I'm so antsy when I have to wait for uh, introductions. I always wish I didn't do so much. I thought, boy, if I hadn't accomplished anything, I'd already be out there. <laughs> Is the sound all right and everything? Okay. I'm going to read you this little piece from my book, Just Kids, New York Times bestseller, <laughs> National Book Award winner. No, I'm just joking. I, I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. When I was very young, my mother took me for walks in Humboldt Park along the edge of the Prairie River I have vague memories, like impressions on glass plates of an old boathouse, a circular bandshell, an arched stone bridge. The narrows of the river emptied into a wide lagoon, and I saw upon its surface a singular miracle. A long, curving neck rose from a dress of white plumage. Swan, my mother said, Sensing my excitement, 
It pattered the bright water, flapping its great wings, and it lifted into the sky. The word alone hardly attested to its magnificence or conveyed the emotion it produced. The sight of it generated an urge I had no words for, a desire to speak of the swan, to say something of its whiteness, the explosive nature of its movement, and the slow beating of its wings. The swan became one with the sky. I struggled to find words to describe my own sense of it. Swan, I repeated, not entirely satisfied. And I felt a twinge, a curious yearning, imperceptible to passerby, my mother, the trees, or the clouds. The reason, the reason I wanted to begin with that is often I wonder what is it that calls to us, uh, draws us to specific vocations. And I thought deeply and deeply about this because the premise of the book is Robert and I, Robert Maplethorpe and I, meeting as two young people and the evolution of, uh, of our work, uh, the desire to be an artist, and the evolution of our friendship. And uh, when I contemplated it, the farthest back I could go to um, grasp my first uh, creative impulse was that moment. And though it was maybe 60 years ago, um, I can still remember that. I can still picture it. I can still feel how I felt and subsequently how I would feel with other things. Uh, for instance, clothing. I had this like, um, first of all, I was a closet Catholic and because uh, I really loved their medals and their ribbons and their scapulas, all their stuff, you know, and, uh, but also that they got to wear a uniform. I thought that this was such a wonderful thing, just one thing. You didn't have to worry about it. It looked cool, and you could wear it every day. And, um, you know, I'd look at these limp little dr plaid dresses my mother would lay out for me to wear every day at school or some, you know, some hand-me-down pink dress with a little ruffled collar, and I'd feel like, like I just wanted to shoot myself. And uh, because from the earliest that I can remember, I had a uh, re aesthetic reaction to everything. In fact, <clears throat> I was raised in the 50s, and in the early 50s, um, Mel Mac took America by storm. Do you remember that or know what that is? It's like this really ugly plastic wear that was like all like like avocado green or like salmon colored. And every housewife in America wanted it because it was easy to wash. It didn't break. Uh, and it was so horrible. And my, <laughs> my grandmother had left behind. She had passed away. Her, she was English. Her beautiful bone china cups and saucers. And I loved having my cocoa 
in one of them. And one day I came home from school and uh, my mother gives me my cocoa in this like salmon colored Melmac cup. And I, I was horrified. I, went, I had aesthetic arrest. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, I, I just, you know, for me, the, the cocoa didn't taste good. It, it didn't feel good in the hand. It wasn't beautiful. The light didn't hit it in a certain way. So one day my uncle came, and uh, we didn't have much money, and he gave us all a quarter to spend at the church bazaar. And they had lots of good stuff. I usually got books and things, but I saw that day a beautiful, beautiful um, Limoges cup and saucer. Now, of course, I didn't know what Limoges was, but it was Limoges. And, you know, beautiful, thin china where you could porcelain, where you could almost see through it. And it was a quarter, so I bought it. So I washed it up. Next morning, my mom's making cocoa, and I said, I'll have mine in this. (laughs) And my mother said, where did you get that? And I said, I bought it. And she said, ho, ho, Madam Queen must have her cocoa in porcelain. And, um, yeah. (laughs) Now, why do I speak of this? Uh, Because I believe... I was, you know, not only developing an aesthetic, it wasn't just that I was developing. I think that it's, it was an innate thing. I have no answer, by the way, to anything I'm talking about. I'm just, like, telling you stuff. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, because he and I were the same age, Robert Maplethorpe was doing a very similar thing in his little middle-class Catholic home in Kew Gardens, Long Island. And um, I thought I would read a little piece about My mother, by the way, continued to call me Madam Queen through much of my life. (laughs) And uh, in fact, uh, my mother always, I have a sister, Linda, who's a saint. I mean, she's a really beautiful person. And my mother always told, said the difference, this was the difference between me and Linda. Um, my mother would be on her hands and knees scrubbing the floor, and we were really little. And my sister Linda said, I wish I was bigger so I could help you. And I said, I wish I was bigger so I could like make a million dollars and hire somebody to do it for you. <laughs> I got it. I got my own dose of it when I got married and had kids and had to scrub many floors in Detroit, so. Robert Michael Maplethorpe was born on Monday, November 4th, 1946. He was raised in Floral Park, Long Island, the third of six children. He was a mischievous little boy whose carefree youth was delicately tinged with a fascination with beauty. His young eyes stored away each play of light, the sparkle of a jewel, the rich dressing of an altar, the burnish 
of a gold-toned saxophone or a field of blue stars. He was gracious and shy with a precise nature. He contained, even at an early age, a stirring and the desire to stir. The light fell upon the pages of his coloring book across his child's hands. Coloring excited him, not the act of filling in space, but choosing colors that no one else would select. In the green of the hills he saw red, purple snow, green skin, silver sun. He liked the effect that it had on others, the way it disturbed his siblings. He discovered also that he had a talent for sketching. He was a natural draftsman, and he secretly twisted and abstracted his images, feeling his growing powers. He was an artist, and he knew it. It was not a childish notion. He merely acknowledged that he was. The light fell upon the components of Robert's beloved jewelry kit, upon the bottles of enamel and the tiny brushes. His fingers were nimble. He delighted in his ability to piece together and decorate brooches for his mother. He wasn't concerned that this was a girl's present, that a jewelry-making kit was a traditional Christmas gift for a girl. His older brother, who was a whiz at sports, would snicker at him as he worked. His mother, Joan, chain-smoked and admired the sight of him sitting at the table, dutifully stringing yet another necklace of Indian beads for her. They were precursors of the necklaces he would later adorn himself with, having then broken from his father, leaving his Catholic, commercial, and military options behind in the wake of LSD and a commitment to live for art alone. Sorry. So <clears throat> now where will we go? I've often thought about, Robert and I used to talk about this all the time. Why, why do some people, you know, develop a certain aesthetic and a certain uh, calling? Not just because they're, uh, they have a certain dexterity or talent or, uh, um, certain uh, gifts or the quality of draftsmanship or whatever, but a true innate calling and a true uh, developing aesthetic. I was, uh, I traced one of my earliest examples to, I used to make my sister, Linda, the saint, um, uh, paper dolls, like make her a doll and then of a certain shape, and then get like Sears catalogs and stuff, and then you know the the pictures that had really big dresses uh, cut around and make anyway make her clothes for her paper dolls, and I used you know Life magazines or mostly Sears catalogs. One day, I was going through people's trash looking for other magazines and stuff, and I found this big stack of Vogue magazines and uh, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. It's like 1954. And back then they were like really big and very impressive. 
And uh, often Irving Penn did the uh, covers, and uh, they always had these women with, like, gloves, very elegant, you know, Vogue, when Vogue was Vogue. And um, so I'd never seen a Vogue before. You know, my mother was, like, the highest magazine we had in the house was Red Book. So um, I open it up, and I look at these pictures, and... It was a giant shock. First of all, to see clothes. You know, I'd seen millions of dresses and clothes and people modeling them in the Sears catalog. But here was another presentation. It was a presentation, uh, not only were the clothes so beautiful, uh, but the way that the people looked, and even more important, the way they were shot. And uh, I, I looked at these pictures, and I remember A being, I had the Sears catalog here, and Vogue here, and I was looking, this is how the person who shoots for Sears catalog portrays a dress, and this is how Irving Penn portrays a dress. Hmm, which is better? <laughs> well, of course, it's all a matter of taste, but I found myself quite drawn to these photographs. And as I looked at more of them, I found that the ones I liked the best, if I looked through the other magazines, I could find that the same person did more pictures, and they were often the ones I liked the best. And so um, I would search them out in magazines that people would leave in the trash in su subsequent months. And in that way, I started learning accidentally about photography. That was my first real introduction to photography. And then I'd say that my second real introduction was um, I loved Alice in Wonderland and I loved the library. I live, I was raised in the Philadelphia area in Germantown and then we moved to South Jersey um, across from a square dance hall and next to a pig farm, and uh, about two miles from the closest library, uh, which was about half the size of this room. And, uh, but there were a few good books in there, but that was about the biggest cultural achievement of the area, besides square dancing every Sunday night. So, one day, I loved Alice in Wonderland, and I was looking for anything relating to Lewis Carroll, and I found an old book of the photographs of Lewis Carroll. And there in these pictures, I saw the way Lewis Carroll photographed children. And I looked at my school picture, <laughs> which was in color, really pathetic. Why is it the school pictures, they find your only second, if you were cool all day long and only look pathetic for one second of the day, that's when they shoot the picture? It's like they have a pathetic radar. She looks pathetic. Get the shot. So I thought, why can't they make our school pictures look more like that? You know, And uh, I asked these questions, but um, was never really honored with an answer. Um, well, I don't know where all this is going, so I think I better stop for a minute. Let's contemplate all of that. 
and uh, you will be tested later. Again, uh, <laughs> what photographer took better pictures than the guy who did the school pictures? Okay, so. This is a lecture, you know. <laughs> well, in any event, uh, excuse me, Robert, I left New York, I mean, I left New Jersey. I left New Jersey in 1967, I was 20 years old. And, um, you know, South Jersey, it had its great points, especially in the music that I grew up with, and because there was a, uh, where I came from, there was um, a very, uh, uh, my, my, my high school was very diverse. It was probably half black, part uh, sp Spanish. There was a lot of uh, challenged children, and uh, um, so I learned a lot of, about diversity in my school, but also uh, they had a really cool jazz club so I learned all about Roland Kirk and Coltrane and Albert Eiler. Uh, but besides that, there wasn't much um, that I missed. <laughs> so um, I was trying to find a job, and I couldn't get a job in Philadelphia. There wasn't many jobs in Philadelphia, so I went to New York City in 1967. And, um, and a chance encounter brought Robert Maplethorpe into my life. We were both 20. Uh, we both uh, um, had uh, similar aesthetic arrests in our youth and uh, aspired to be artists. And so I would like to do a little song for those two people. Actually, I'm just doing the song in case you don't like my lecture. <laughs> and <laughs> the Lord is speaking. <laughs> okay. I wrote this song, but uh, I don't usually play it myself because I always mess it up, but Lenny Kay isn't here, uh, so I'll have to... Gosh, this is so twisted. All right, that's all right. Anyway, it's called Wing, and uh, um, just, oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, okay. How was a wing?
told you I always screw it up. Move in as on nothing. No future at all. Yet I was free. I needed no one It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And if there's one thing could do for you. So nothing, no future at all. Yet I was free. I needed no money. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And if there's one thing. So, uh, yeah, so, anyway, so Robert and I, um, we met, and uh, we wound up getting a little place um, together and on Hall Street near Pratt Institute, and um, we spent all of our time, we both worked in bookstores, and uh, we spent all of our time working in the bookstore and then coming back home and drawing and uh, painting, and I wrote poems. And Robert did these beautiful uh, collages and uh, montages and uh, small constructions. And he would often um, he would be looking for different images, and he would find them in magazines or old books and things, and incorporate them. And uh, sometimes he wanted um, he would like us to be in them, and he would occasionally get uh, a friend to try to take our picture to get the right photograph for the image he needed for the 
uh, PC was working for, but they never worked out good. And I always used to say, well, you should take the picture. And he said, nah, I'm not really interested. I said, no, you should take them, because I love photography uh, so much. Because my love affair with photography just expanded. Um, from Lewis Carroll, I learned about Julia Margaret Cameron, and uh, I just loved her pictures. And then, uh, and as I've, I discovered French poetry, um, you know, their portraits were usually done by Nadar or um, Karjat, I think his name is. I'm really bad with, like, you know, uh, accents and pronouncing things properly. But um, the beautiful pictures of Rimbaud and Baudelaire and Nerval and, um, and just on and on, you know. So in any event, eventually... Um, we went through a lot of different things, and uh, we wound up at the Chelsea Hotel. Now, I'm not trying to tell you the whole story of uh, me and Robert or of anything, because you have to buy the book. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> but, um, sorry. Uh, I had this all planned, what I was going to talk about, but now the reality of the situation is just what I feel like talking about is totally different things. You know, I have like an impetus to talk about nutrition or um, you know, dental care or how to take care of if you have really good leather boots, don't use the wrong product on them. There's so many things in life to talk about, you know, you know, developing aesthetic awareness. I mean, is this really important? I, I mean, it is a beautiful part of life. And of course, aesthetic awareness uh, runs the gamut. It's, uh, it's not, you know, just a, a thing that we apply only to art. because so we all know that. I mean, look at Capability Brown, you know, um, going out into, you know, yeah, uh, I don't know what century he worked in. Maybe it was the 18th, maybe it was the 17th century. You know, he's walking around the English countryside and people are putting pagodas and stuff and, you know, and, and chopping down all the trees and then putting new trees up to make all these, like, um, uh, yeah, these uh, lavish uh, Barokian or, uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, landscape that was completely had nothing to do with the actual natural landscape. So he became a landscape architect who dealt with what he had. He'd look at a hill and see what nature gave and just, you know, just sort of pruned around it to, like, make it so that we actually saw, you know, nature's vision if nature had a, you know, um, pruning shears. And uh, it was quite beautiful. And, uh, and then you have, uh, you know, people that, um, like skateboards, you know, or uh, um, surfboards. Have you ever seen the care and attention and the, um, the exquisite line and the pinstriping on these things? Oh, So, one of the problems was as I was fed much too close to, um, uh, usually, I, I do a lot of very high intellectual 
really intellectual uh, lectures in Europe. Uh, the reason that they're intellectual is usually I'm speaking to an audience of non-English um, <laughs> attendees, so they just, I just look serious and they suffer through the whole thing and then I sing at the end and they're happy and they think that I'm highly intelligent. <laughs> well, as I said, I had a plan and I've just obviously abandoned it. And so everything that I talked about to lead up to where I was going is useless. So you have to think of it more like a Samuel Beckett play. And that um, the whole beginning was merely to get us to this moment where we're actually, you know, really with each other. And I'm not just like nervously telling you stories of my childhood. So I think I'll read this part. Has nothing to do with anything that we talked about. It's just fun to read. And you know what? Fun is important. Did anybody, does anybody know this song, Taffy Was a Welshman? You know, Taffy was a Welshman, Taffy was a thief. Taffy came to my house and stole a leg of beef. I went to Taffy's house, Taffy wasn't home. Taffy came to my house and stole a marrow bone or something like that. Truthfully, I don't know what the point is of this song, but, you know, I'm Welsh, you know, part Welsh, and it looms large in our family legend because Taffy was a Welshman. You're probably wondering why I even asked this question. Well, I wasn't going to read this one part, but I do allude to Taffy was a Welshman in this book. It's one of the more exciting areas of the book. I'm going to skip it, though, because... <laughs> Instead, a few words about Horn and Hard Arts. Now, how many of you have eaten at Horn and Hard Arts in your life? Thank goodness. Can you, I have to say, reading, um, reading about Horn and Hearts in Budapest was difficult. <laughs> Horn and Hearts, the queen of the automats, was just past the fish and tackle shop near the Chelsea Hotel. The routine was to get a seat in a tray then go to the back wall where there were rows of tiny little windows. You would slip some coins into a slot and open up the glass hatch and extract a sandwich or some fresh apple pie. It was a real Tex Avery eatery. My favorite, I'm so glad that you understand the Tex Avery. <laughs> There's so many esoteric references in this book, like a real Anna Kavan setup. <laughs> I'm telling you. Uh, Tex Avery, if you don't know, was like, when I was a kid, they had these, uh, I think they were like 1940s or cartoons, and uh, it would be, um, and they were Tex Avery cartoons, and it would say, have music like this, do-do-do-do-do-do, the modern housewife, 
what can she look forward to? And then it would show the, the kitchen of the future, you know, with like that you, you pressed a button and do to do to do to do then the, the toaster would, would go like this and, and a spring would make the bread pop and it'd go into the toaster and it would go into a dish and then you know the, the dish would come towards you and then another thing would bring up the knife and slap butter on it. <laughs> Tex Avery. Anyway, it was a real Tex Avery eatery. My favorite was chicken pot pie. And uh, Robert, oh, and I also liked um, this one sandwich. It was cheese and mustard with lettuce on a poppy seed roll. Robert liked their two specialties, baked macaroni and cheese and chocolate milk. And he would order them together. (laughs) I was always hungry. I metabolized my food rather quickly. Robert could go without eating much longer than me. And if we were out of money, though, we just didn't eat. Of course, this was pre-credit card. I really, I mean, I could stop for a moment and tell you about the evils of the credit card and how it has ruined uh, just about every aspect of our creative society, but I'll spare you. Robert might be able to function, even if he got a little shaky, but me, I would feel like I was going to pass out. One drizzly afternoon, I had a hankering for one of those cheese and lettuce sandwiches. I went through our belongings and found exactly 55 cents. I slipped on my gray trench coat and my Mayakovsky cap. All my clothes were named. (laughs) And I headed to the automat. I got my tray, slipped in my coins, but the window wouldn't open. I tried it again without luck, and then I noticed that the price had gone up to 65 cents. I was disappointed, to say the least, when I heard a voice say, Can I help? I turned around, and it was Allen Ginsberg. (laughs) We had never met but there was no mistake in the face of one of our great poets and activists. I looked into those intense, dark eyes, punctuated by his dark, curly beard, and I just nodded. Alan added the extra dime and also stood me for a cup of coffee. I wordlessly followed him to the table, and then I plowed into the sandwich. (laughs) Alan introduced himself. He was talking about Walt Whitman, And then I mentioned that I was raised near Camden, where Whitman was buried. When he leaned forward and looked at me intently, Are you a girl, he asked. (laughs) Yeah, I said, is that a problem? (laughs) He just laughed, I'm sorry. I took you for a very pretty boy. I got the picture immediately. Well, uh, does this mean I gotta return the sandwich? (laughs) No, no, he said, enjoy it. It was my mistake. (laughs) He told me he was writing a long elegy for Jack Kerouac, who had recently passed away. Three days after Rimbaud's birthday, I said solemnly, 
and I shook his hand and we parted company. Sometime later, Alan became my good friend and teacher. We often, <laughs> sorry, I just, he was, he was such a great guy, really, sorry. We often reminisced about our first encounter and he once asked me how I would describe how we met. I would say, you fed me when I was hungry. And he did. Robert and I moved to the Chelsea Hotel in 1969. And, uh, you know, we were so oblivious. I guess we were like, I don't know, 22 or something. And we didn't have any money and we were struggling and going through a lot of, uh, you know, personal changes. Robert in, in wrestling with his sexuality and us trying to figure out how to, uh, how we could evolve and save our, our, our friendship and our relationship and, um, and also struggling just to eat and I went to Paris with my sister uh, for a couple of months and we scraped around in Paris and then I came home and uh, the night I came home my sister and I didn't have enough money to we had just run out of money we had just enough money to get to the airport and uh we had to go from Paris to Luxembourg, and then from Luxembourg to uh, Iceland, and then like a 14-hour flight on a prop plane to get home. It was the cheapest way. <laughs> and uh, we were so hungry, but we had a little bit of money, and, and there was a little cafe in Luxembourg, and I said, well, we'll just go in and split like, you know, maybe some bread, and we can get one cup of coffee. So we go in, and there's some people in there, and they're all, like, toward the back watching a TV, this little black-and-white TV about this big. So we walk in and order coffee, and they say, American. And uh, back in 1969, if you, you were an American, you did your best to hide it. And, but, we, yeah. And they said, American! And they all start cheering us and everything, and we're going, whoa, what happened, you know? And... Uh, they brought us like piles of food. It was an Italian restaurant in, in Luxembourg. I don't know. But uh, they brought us like giant things of uh, spaghetti and big things of bread and, and wine in the little uh, bottle that comes, you know, what is it, that little straw bottle that you can make into a candle. And uh, <laughs> we couldn't figure it out. And we were saying, we don't have any money. You know, we, we can't pay for it. And they said, no, no, no you know, it's free, and they were all cheering us. And what we found out is we had landed on the moon. We, we had absolutely no clue that we had landed on the moon. Lucky for us, you know. So, um, then, uh, so I came home to New York, and Robert was really sick. I mean, really, really sick, and... Uh, I went to the loft where he was, and um, he didn't know we had landed on the moon either, and he was in America. <laughs> so we didn't have a TV or anything, anything like that. So um, no point to this story at all, except 
I just wanted to lead to the end of the 60s. And um, two other things. Oh, the other thing that happened. I could read you that. No, I can just tell about it. The other thing that happened is, well, we, we went to the Chelsea Hotel. And uh, I got my job at uh, Scribner's Bookstore. And Robert and I had the tiniest little room in the Chelsea Hotel. And he was really sick, getting better. And then we were, you know, there for about a month and a half or something. And uh, one evening, I was really restless, and I went down, and there was a bar adjacent to the, to the Chelsea called the El, it's still there, called the El Quixote Bar. And everybody went in there. So I thought, go in, and I was looking to see if anybody was around, because we had friends and stuff. And I walk in this bar, and they're sitting at one table, because there's these rows of tables. There's like Janis Joplin and her whole band. And then in another was like Country Joe and the Fish or somebody. Then there was Grace Slick and all of her people. And then at the end, Jimi Hendrix was having food with some blonde with his face hidden with his hat. It was like, hole in my bar. <laughs> I like stood there like, what the hell's happening? And uh, what happened was Woodstock had happened, and I had no idea that Woodstock <laughs> happened. I mean, I was working at the bookstore seven in the morning, and then seven at night, and then we were doing our thing. And um, so, I mean, everybody, people often now say, "Gee, you know," because they can see I'm, you know, 97 years old, and I've <laughs> seen and done everything. And uh, they say, did you go to Woodstock? And I always say, no, Woodstock came to me. <laughs> this is just a, little, just a little thing about the end of the 60s. I know that this evening has no real continuity, and, uh, but maybe that could be the um, theme, a lack of continuity and how to actually hold on to that and make certain that there is no continuity to the whole night and then it will really have a Samuel Beckett kind of quality and uh, if only I come up with a punchline uh, um, it'll all be alright you know I do have two honorary doctorates One from a school that I was thrown out of, and the other from a school that um, uh, turned me down. So <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> it snowed on Christmas night. Robert and I walked to Times Square to see the white billboard proclaiming, War is over if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. It hung above the bookstall where Robert bought most of his men's magazines between Childs and Benedict's to all-night diners. Looking up, we were struck by the ingenuous humanity of this New York City tableau. Robert took my hand, and as the snow swirled around, I glanced at his face. He narrowed his eyes and nodded in affirmation impressed to see artists take over 42nd Street. For me, it was the message for Robert, the medium. Newly inspired, we walked back to 23rd Street to look at our new space. 
He had hung the necklaces we had made on hooks, and he had tacked up some of our drawings. We stood at the window and looked out at the snow falling beyond the fluorescent oasis sign of the bar above us with its squiggly palm trees. Look, he said, it's snowing in the desert. I thought about a scene in Howard Hawke's movie Scarface where Paul Muni and his girl are looking out the window at a neon sign that said, the world is yours. Robert squeezed my hand. The 70s, the 60s were coming to an end. Robert and I celebrated our birthdays. Robert turned 23, then I turned 23, the perfect prime number. Robert made me a rack with the image of the Virgin Mary. It was for my ties. I gave him seven silver skulls on a length of leather. He wore the skulls. I wore a tie. We felt ready for the 70s. It's our decade, he said. So Robert continued to do his uh, collages, and, um, but he started, uh, you know, when I first met Robert, he was working with a lot of Catholic imagery, and then it moved into uh, sort of black magic, then it moved into freaks, and then it moved into sailors. And, um, but when he was working uh, with the sailors, he used a lot of images from men's magazines, and they were very expensive and I, I used to tell him, you know, you should take pictures of your own sailors, you know, your own fellas, or, you know, just take your own pictures and put them in your uh, uh, collages. And um, eventually he did. And uh, this is just a word about Robert taking Polaroids. The Polaroid... The Polaroid camera in Robert's hands. The physical act, a jerk of the wrist. The snapping, the snapping sound when pulling the slot and the anticipation, 60 seconds to see what he got. The immediacy of the process, it just, it, it suited his temperament. At first he toyed with the camera. He wasn't really convinced that it was for him and the film was really expensive. Ten pictures for about three dollars, a substantial amount in 1971. But it was some step up from the photo booth, and it was much better than the magazines. I was Robert's first model. He was comfortable with me, and he needed time to get his technique down. The mechanics of the camera were simple, but the options were limited. We took countless photographs. At first, he had to pull his reins in on me. I would try to get him to take pictures like the album cover for Bringing It All Back Home, where Bob Dylan surrounds himself with all his favorite things. I arranged my dice and my Sinner license plate, and I got a Kurt Vile copy of Lotta Lenya, and I got my copy of Blonde on Blonde, and I got a black slip like Anna Mignani's. The picture is too cluttered, cluttered with crap, he said. Just let me take your picture. But I like my stuff. 
Yeah, well, we're, make, we're not making an album cover, we're making art. I hate art, I yelled, and he took the picture. He was his own first male subject. No one could question him shooting himself. He had control. He figured out what he wanted to see by seeing himself. He was pleased with his first images, but the cost, the cost of film was so high that he was obliged to set the camera aside, but not for long. Robert spent a lot of time improving our space and the presentation of his work, but sometimes he gave me a worried look. Is everything all right? Yes, everything's all right. But truthfully, I was also involved in so many things that the question of money or Robert's sexual persuasion was not always my first immediate concern. One afternoon, Gregory Corso came to visit us. My room reflected the bright mess of my interior world, part boxcar and part fairyland. Gregory called on Robert first and they had a smoke. So by the time Gregory came to visit me, the sun was already going down. I was sitting on the floor typing on my Remington. Gregory came in and panned my room slowly. Piss cups, broken toys. Well, let me explain. Uh, the reason there were piss cups is because Robert and I didn't have a bathroom. If we had to go to the bathroom, we had to go to the Chelsea Hotel. You know, and it's like, you know, half a block away, you know, when you have to go, you know, you're in the middle of, you're writing your ha-ha-ha masterpiece, and you can't, you can't stop, and then you wait just too long, and so you have no, um, you know, you have no recourse. So, you know, a, a to-go cup is, you know those to-go cups, you know, with the little Greek sign, the little Greek, anyway, it's just... I know in one way it might, to some people, it might sound disgusting, but, you know, you do what you have to do. I mean, people have suffer way worse. I mean, when I was a kid, one of the places we had had an outhouse, and believe me, when it's freezing cold or when it's really hot and there's, like, flies and stuff or bumblebees in the outhouse, you would wish you had a piss cup in your room. <laughs> Gregory looked around. Yeah, this is my kind of place, he said. I dragged over an old armchair. Gregory lit a cigarette and read from my pile of abandoned poems. Then he drifted off, making a little burn mark on the arm of the chair. I poured some of my Nescafe over it. He awoke and drank the rest. I staked him a few dollars for his most pressing needs. As he was leaving, he looked at an old crucifix hanging over my mat. Beneath the feet of Christ was a little skull embellished with the words, Memento More. It means, remember we are mortal, said Gregory, but poetry is not. I just nodded. When he left, I sat down on my chair and ran my fingers over the cigarette burn, a fresh scar left by one of our greatest poets. He would always spell trouble and might even wreak havoc, but yet he gave us a body of work pure as a newborn fawn.
I was really lucky living at the Chelsea Hotel at that time because I did. I had people. I had Gregory Corso, who uh, taught me so much, and William Burroughs was always there, and, and Alan, and after a while, Herbert Hunky was there, and Harry Smith, and so who needed school? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to sing this other song. How are we doing? Are we all right? Yeah. If you have to go to the bathroom, you can leave. <laughs> Pass it around. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I wrote this song. Um, all my life, I, I wanted to be an artist, and my, I, I read a lot of wonderful books about the trials and tribulations of, well, not just artists. Um, E.T. Bell's wonderful book, Men of Mathematics, uh, tells harrowing stories of, of uh, you know, starvation, duels, and, uh, and death of these very beautiful mathematicians who were ahead of their time. Uh, stories even more harrowing than the stories of Vincent van Gogh. And, um, but in any event, one thing I did know is People suffered, you know. Uh, you take on something like wanting to be an, a poet or an artist um, or some uh, vocation uh, outside of, uh, of, of outside of society. You're you have to sacrifice, and um, it's something that we should never forget in our pursuit of things that uh, are, are difficult and uh, lofty is that the goal is not fame and fortune. The goal is to do good work. And I always, if I forget that every once in a while or I feel disappointed or I feel unappreciated, I know lately I haven't been unappreciated, I understand. <laughs> but uh, sometimes we all feel unappreciated. And I always think about William Blake and William Blake in his lifetime, though he was such a beautiful engraver and painter and writer and poet and activist um, and uh, champion of children, um, was hardly appreciated at all in his lifetime. In fact, he was a complete uh, victim of the Industrial Revolution. There he was learning his trade, becoming one of our great engravers, and the printing presses invented, you know, and who needed them? And uh, so he died rather unappreciated, almost forgotten, and poverty struck. But uh, William Blake never let go of his vision, never uh, let go of the joy of uh, being blessed with uh, visionary powers. And also... William Blake was not selfish. He believed that every human being had the ability to animate their creative impulse and, uh, and, uh, and to understand the difference between the Sears catalog and uh, Irving Penn.
taking year I was so disposed toward a mission yet unclear advancing pole by pole Thank you. Um, maybe uh, might have a few questions in the audience. We'll take a little break from the, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of grueling heaviness of this academic lecture. <laughs> Anybody got a question? Just shout it out. Well, actually, you can speak into the mic so it can be recorded. Oh, OK. Let's not lose anything for posterity. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. I can say this. This is going to be like a 45-minute. Uh... <laughs> and let's get that for posterity. 
posterity. <laughs> just, just step away from it a little. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm just curious about why you ended up in the Chelsea Hotel. Was it known? Why, why we ended up, Robert and I ended up, we didn't quite end up at the Chelsea Hotel. Of course, you could read the book, but... Um, I, I, I already bought two of them. It was uh, actually, we wound up at the Chelsea Hotel because um, after a couple of other harrowing experiences at flop houses, someone told me that Mr. Bard at the Chelsea Hotel would let you stay there in exchange for art. Well, yeah, if you were Larry Rivers or de Kooning or somebody, I guess, but... So I just, we were... Is this out? Okay. So we were a little desperate, and uh, I figured Robert's work was was great. I mean, Robert was a great artist. Uh, he was a great artist. He was just born a great artist. So we went to the Chelsea Hotel because we had no money, and I figured when Stanley Bard saw Robert's work, and my work was pretty good too, he would naturally give us a room in exchange for it. And uh, we went there. And uh, he didn't, but um, but because I was gainfully about to be uh, employed, I had a job, an impending job at Scribner's Bookstore, and half the people at the Chelsea um, didn't have a job. Mr. Bard was so uh, um, uh, he was, you know, just so taken with the fact that I was employed that he gave us a shot. So. <laughs> So I left Robert there, and I went up to Scribner's and got an advance on my next week's pay, and that's where we wound up. Okay? Next question? Yes. Hi. Um, excuse me. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> I'm cu can, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm curious, why do you make art? Well, you know, a lot of this, that was one of the things that we were, one of the questions uh, that I was thinking about in the beginning of this, they're leaving. They're leaving. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. Uh, um, I think that, well, for myself, um, I think that, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know what the what, what the answer to that is, except, you know, there's all kinds of lofty answers, you know, to do something uh, uh, that is transformative, you know, that will, you know, so for the viewer, you know, the, the artist knows how to um, magnify his creative impulse into a body of work that shares this creative impulse with the viewer. So if the viewer doesn't have that ability to um, transfer his uh, creative impulse into an object, he can feel one. Uh, that's kind of like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> All of that's true. I just do it because I have to. You know, I don't know. I'm compelled to do it. Um, the thing I'm most compelled to do is, well, write. I've been writing since I was a child. Every day I write. I don't know why. I mean, I always believed because I was both blessed and cursed, you know, by the gods, the muses. And uh, 
that's that in its simplest form is what I've always thought. And um, but for me, it's not the why; it's what to do because have this inclination, and the inclination is to honor that ability, you know, to take care of myself, to have a good work ethic, to try to do the best work I can. Because I'm not much, obviously, I'm not really the analytic type, but, um, but it's a good question. People have been asking it for centuries. <laughs> Any other question? May I, may I ask a question? Um, yes. So let's see. Okay. So, um, so you said that um, the goal is not fame or fortune, but to do good work. And this makes a lot more sense to me than a lot of things that I hear about why one does what one does. And I wanted to get a feeling from you, if you can remember. Pardon me? How do you, how do you know when you personally, how do you know when you've done good work and how long does it take you to figure that out? <laughs> Well, really, it's one of the most uh, wonderful gifts that Robert gave me was, um, uh, you know, I, I had a sense of that, you know, some of it is just youthful bravado or conceit or, you know, whatever, but I also had a lot of uh, uh, doubt and still experience a lot of doubt in my life, but Robert never had doubt. He just knew he was an artist. He loved his own work. He knew when it was finished. He knew when he was abandoning it because it was either at an impasse or he had lost interest. He had so much self-confidence and understanding of things like that. And um, yet he was very shy. I, you know, I'm like, you know, one of those St. Bernards that, you know, come bounding into the china shop, you know. So I was able to, you know, instill some of my bravado in Robert, and he was able to instill his confidence in me. And uh, it's, I don't, I can't answer that question exactly, except, you know, when I, I feel like maybe it's just when I know that I've done the best that I can do, you know, and when I feel that it's worthy to, you know, of other people's time. Because, I mean, even tonight, okay, was it worthy of your time? I mean, only you know. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's just, you'll have to answer that. But, you know, when we take up, um, you write a book, you're taking up precious paper, you know, the cloth, you're, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that go into a book a book is an object, it's a precious object, and you know, hopefully what one puts in it is worthy of, of existing. You know, so just, uh, you know, I look at a piece of work and think, you know, is the world a better place now that it exists? So, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know why I told you to ask questions because I don't have any real answers to anything. <laughs> I'll, I'll give an opinion about anything. I'll talk about, you know, if the British Open, you know, at the golf tournament was tomorrow, I could not only give you an opinion of who is going to win, but I could also talk about, you know, the great matches in the 80s with Seve Ballesteros and Tom Watson. You know, I'll talk about anything. 
Sorry. Well, um, what she's asking is, uh, how did my relationship with Robert change after I had some success, which came a little, a little before Robert's, which was a bit ironic since Robert craved success much more than I did. Um, Robert and I did not experience uh, 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 jealousy or envy of each other ever. And uh, um, he was nothing but happy uh, to see me get success. Um, mournful sometimes because people didn't um, understand him. But uh, I think there's a little thing I could read that might answer this question. I feel like I'm going to be arrested or so there's a, somebody's going to come in with one of those poles, you know, with the, you know, like in, like in Bugs Bunny, you know, where he's like doing these like long tap dances in the middle of the opera and they bring the pole and. This was in, uh, this happened in 1978. One late afternoon, Robert and I were walking down 8th Street when we heard Because the Night blasting from one storefront after another. It was my collaboration with Bruce Springsteen, the single from the album Easter. Robert was my first listener after we had recorded the song. I had a reason for that. It was what he always wanted for me. It was the summer of 1978, and it rose to number 13, on the top 40 charts, fulfilling Robert's dream that I would one day have a hit record. Robert was smiling and walking in rhythm with the song. He took out a cigarette and lit it. We had been through a lot since our first, sorry, we had been through a lot since he first rescued me from the science fiction writer. Mm-hmm, have to buy the book to read about that one. Imagine how exciting that would be. Me, almost kidnapped by a science fiction writer in 1967. <clears throat> the paperback has 16 extra pages that the hardcover doesn't have. <laughs> well, you know, I worked in a bookstore for seven years, you know, it's just... Anyway... Robert was smiling and walking in rhythm with the song. He took out a cigarette and lit it. We had been through a lot since he first rescued me from the science fiction writer and we shared a chocolate egg cream on a stoop near Tompkins Square. Robert was unabashedly proud of my success. 
What he wanted for himself, he wanted for us both. He exhaled a perfect stream of smoke and spoke in a way that he only used with me, a bemused scolding, admiration without envy, our brother-sister language. Patty, he drawled, you got famous before me. So in case any of you uh, uh, experienced any suffering this evening, um, I will, I'm going to make myself suffer and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, segue from that into uh, this. Uh, I can't play it because it has more than four chords and that's really my limit. And, uh, and um, so I'll have to uh, uh, do it a cappella. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close, try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed. Come on now, try and understand. The way I feel under your command. Take me now as the sun descends. They can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now. Because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us, because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us have I doubt when I'm alone love is a ring the telephone love is an angel disguised as last here in our bed until the morning comes but come on now try and understand the way I feel under your command Take me now, come under cover. They can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now. Because the night belongs to lovers. You don't know it? Belongs to us. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night belongs to us now here's the part where Lenny K plays his solo on electric guitar and everybody gets excited and everybody starts cheering and then I enter the song again although we're filled with doubt the vicious circle turns and burns without you oh I cannot live Forgive the yearning, burning, I believe It's time to feel, reveal, and touch me now 
Touch me now, touch me now. Hey, because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us, because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us, because we believe in the night with lovers. Because we believe in the night we trust. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night belongs to love. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please, thanks. Thanks a lot. That was so nice. Thank you. You did good, too. Sometimes they... I'm like... (laughs) That was good. It was nice and strong. And uh, so... um, I'm going to um, read one more thing. I will finish the evening. Uh, Whatever, uh, well, I'll read um, one more little thing that uh, hopefully will answer the question about art. I don't know, who can answer these questions? I don't even have, I don't even know exactly what I was trying to achieve to today. Sometimes I'm a little more linear, but in the end, what we're trying to achieve when we all get together in any situation like this is to communicate. And sometimes, uh, you know, we discover things, sometimes uh, we have epiphanies, and sometimes we have fun. So um, if nothing else, I had a lot of fun hanging out with you. So. I forgot, I always like to salute, uh, I don't know how to say it. Did you ever read this book called The Microbe Hunters by Paul DeCroof? It's one of my favorite books when I was a kid. You know, I actually have an autographed copy. I found it in a church bazaar. I mean, I didn't know Paul DeCroof or anything. But in this book, The Microbe Hunters, it starts with uh, the story. It's sort of like men in mathematics because it goes and tells the different uh, just you know, little stories of of uh, all these guys that helped us create a huge canon of work. And uh, the microbe hunter starts with Leo Winhoek. Is that how you say his name? Anyway, he did a lot of work with the lens and developing the microscope. And um, he was very, uh, you know, instrumental in inventing glasses. And uh, I always think of him when. Uh, I'm cleaning my glasses because I can't read without them. In fact, I love him so much. I loved him when I was a kid. I love him so much that 
he, he uh, was born and lived his whole life in Delft. And uh, I was in Amsterdam. I had a job there and I had a day off. And I went to Delft and I found his, uh, you know, his resting place and said thanks. <laughs> so I'll read you something. Little piece from the beginning of the book and the end. Much has been said about Robert, and more will be added. Young men will adapt his gait. Young girls will wear white dresses and mourn his curls. He will be condemned and adored, his excesses damned or romanticized. In the end, the truth will be found in his work, the corporal body of the artist. It will not fall away. Man cannot judge it. For art sings of God and ultimately belongs to him. And the last thing is a little letter I wrote to Robert. He was very, uh, very sick with AIDS. And I wrote it, but he did not live to read it. Dear Robert, often as I lie awake, I wonder if you are also lying awake. Are you in pain or feeling alone? You drew me from the darkest period of my young life, sharing with me the sacred mystery of what it is to be an artist. I learned to see through you and never compose a line or draw a curve that does not come from the knowledge I derived in our precious time together. Your work, coming from a fluid source, can be traced to the naked song of your youth. You spoke of holding hands with God. Remember through everything, you have always held that hand. Grip it hard, Robert, and don't let go. The other afternoon, when you fell asleep on my shoulder, I drifted off, but before I did, it occurred to me, looking around at all of your things and your work and going through years of your work in my mind, that of all your work, you are still the most beautiful, the most beautiful work of all. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.